Welcome to this edition of the Art Business Podcast. My guest today is someone I've known for a long time since I started working at Sotheby's Institute of Art. Uh, his name is Jeremy Eckstein. He will, his name will be known to a lot of you. But I think that um, for those of you who don't know Jeremy, you will find his work in the art world and specifically in art business and the market uh, particularly interesting. Uh, he has a lot of stories to tell um, about his career, which um, continues today. We will probably speak about what Jeremy's doing at the moment um, towards the end of the uh, podcast. Um, so welcome, Jeremy. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and I always start by asking my guests um, a few questions so that the listeners get some idea about where they're coming from in terms of their personalities and general interests. So, Jeremy, what's your favourite city and why? I guess my favourite city was London. Otherwise, I wouldn't still be living here. I've been living <laughs> all my life. But increasingly, we find that all of the excitement that London has to offer are things that are suitable for younger people, not necessarily for us. And if you ask me what my favourite city is now, I might very well say Aubrey or <laughs> um, Orford or somewhere on the Suffolk coast, uh, Felixstowe. Um, we are moving to the stage where I want to look outside our front door and see grass, not traffic. Yes. Um, but meanwhile, London is still a city I adore. Um, I'm still awestruck by the uh, skyscape, skyscape. Um, you look one way, you see the modern city, you look the other way, you see historic London, St Paul's. And I'm awestruck by the contrast and by the way the city is developing. So it still has to be my favourite city. It's a curious paradox, isn't it, the city? I'm sure that our mm. listeners, um, whatever age they are, they they yearn sometimes to to get out of the city. But I think it, <laughs> I still, when I leave the city for the countryside, I I sometimes wonder whether I want to stay there, you know, for the rest of my life, or maybe retire there, or whether I would miss the city. And at the moment, I'm glad to say that I would miss the city. That there's a yes. there's a dynamism about cities which is you know which we all know is there. And, and, you know, I was in New York last week and it has that same feel. And it's very hard to put your finger on what mm -hmm. it is, but uh, there is a, there's a buzz about it. And it's a very different world from nature, I think. So that my next question was, do you have a, you've already spoken about East Anglia, the beautiful East Anglian co coast, all lovely towns yeah. like Aldborough and Orford. Would that be your favorite countryside area? Either there or, um, on the south coast, somewhere like uh, Whitstable. Yes, which of course has art world connections. It's a heritage site, and we know and love Whitstable. We've got plenty of family who live down there, and it wouldn't be a difficult move. We were there this past weekend, and uh, were sorely tempted by the lifestyle we could lead down there. Um, the answer is with a stage of life where we are thinking of downsizing, and the next question is downsizing to where? Yes. Um, and that's the big issue, which we're still discussing. Hopefully we'll resolve it soon. And uh, I, I guess for the benefit maybe of our younger listeners, um, I think downsizing becomes something that you begin to realise that you might have to do uh, because what we mean is like selling one's property in London, uh, getting maybe a smaller property in the countryside where the real estate is much less expensive and then maybe living off the, the difference. <laughs> Absolutely. That's exactly what we plan on doing. <laughs> and I guess in the art world, in the art market, you know, you often hear of people saying... Mm, you know, I realise uh, that I could purchase a number of works should I sell this single work that has, since I bought it, has, has gone up a lot in value. And yeah. I think, you know, similar decisions are made in in, in uh, art collecting as they are maybe in, yes. in sort of where we want to live. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, um, 
And what about buildings? I mean, um, do you have a favorite piece of architecture or it doesn't necessarily have to be for aesthetic reasons, but maybe a building that you, you like being in on, you know, going to? Um, Lincoln Cathedral. Lincoln say. Cathedral. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the answer might be Durham Cathedral, but we've never managed to get there yet. <laughs> but until we do, it's Lincoln Cathedral. Um, it's awe-inspiring. Um, Absolutely, I know it quite well. And I, I think you're thinking of Durham because it, it's a, Durham is also a, a strong Norman foundation with this wonderful crypt. Um, and uh, the, the, the art business students, we, we passed it on the train on the way to Edinburgh the other day, where it looks quite Ooh. magnificent <laughs> across the river as you come in on the train. Uh, right. They were probably all actually reading books asleep or listening to their podcasts, but I know a lot of them look out the window and they might remember it. And, uh, and, and just to put a, give, give it a bit more context, Jeremy, I know that your, um, I think that your 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 religion is 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 is, is Judaism, but I, I know from past conversations with you that you. You have a great interest, particularly in the built architecture of the Christian church in this country. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, when I left Sotheby's, I, I became freelance. I wanted to apply my statistical skills in um, other areas of interest, and it turned to the built heritage. And I was very involved in working for the Church of England at one stage, although they've got a strong statistical research department, they also employed outside consultants. And I did a lot of work for them on um, the financial requirements for bringing historic places of worship up to an acceptable standard. So much so that the Bishop of London used to call me his pet statistician. <laughs> and I, one of my small claims to fame is that I was responsible for the research that resulted in the alleviation of VAT on repairs to historic places of worship. It was a bit of a mouthful, but it was actually very quite important. And at the same time, I was doing work for the Historic Houses Association, um, produced a document for them, which went to the, um, uh, what is it called? The um, National Lottery uh, Heritage Fund. Um, I worked for the Architectural Heritage Foundation put together a database of sources of funding for repairs to buildings there. So I've done a lot of research for historic buildings and especially for historic places of worship, because for many of them, um, they're very old buildings, the congregations don't have the money to repair them. And if they're of historic interest, they're important and worth saving. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think we'd say to, our listeners that if they are uh, like a lot of my students have uh, are in the UK to study in London um, mm. they may not be here for many years uh, but um, you know we've taken them already to St Ives in Cornwall uh, to study the the, the the art colony there and uh, also to Edinburgh and Glasgow mainly because we're not going into we weren't going into Europe because of the pandemic uh, but they, I think that they all really, really enjoyed seeing that there is a world outside, there is a British world outside of, of London, and that there are also areas like Cornwall that have that have their own languages and Celtic cultures, and Scotland now, as well, of course. If you've taken them to Cornwall, you should make them watch the film Fisherman's Friend. Oh yes, I know that one <laughs> with the choir. They'd enjoy that. It's a real story, isn't it, about a, a fisherman's choir that. Uh, yes, it's actually yeah. it is real. It's based yeah. on on real life. Yes, <laughs> that's quite good fun. I agree with that. And uh, the the um, I think also just to understand what Jeremy's talking about with the churches and cathedrals of this country, they uh, we we find them everywhere. If 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 you're lucky enough to be able to drive and can hire a car. Uh, you can make some really beautiful routes around coming back to East Anglia. I know that that is an area where there's a lot of these churches that uh, usually they're open. They trust them to be open in the day or it will mm -hmm. tell you where you get the key. 
And you, it's a bit like being in Italy, that in every Itali Italian village or town, you'll, you'll see some amazing piece of Renaissance art, even, even if it may not be by a famous artist. And you see these wonderful sort of wall paintings sometimes and carvings uh, in these historic buildings, which in, the, in this country, uh, they, you know, the building itself will often date back to the Saxon periods. That's the, the period after the, the, the ancient Roman armies leave and, and before the Normans arrive in the 11th century. Uh, so they're wonderful historical spaces and also very peaceful meditative places just to sit and be. Um, and I, another thing about East Anglia is I remember, Jeremy, there's a lot of churches there that are now from what from villages or, or, or towns that have been deserted. Well, you know, the deserted medieval villages. So the church has been left almost like on a beach with no congregation. And they're yes. the ones that often need to be protected by the organisations that you've been involved in. East Anglia used to be a major, major economic hub in this country when, the, when sheep were um, exported. Um, but now um, many of those areas are dead, you're right. Yep, and... Uh, the coastline uh, is eroded or whatever. <laughs> and you get these deserted villages, it's eerie. Strange, and sometimes they just bumps in the ground um, called DMVs, deserted medieval villages to our archaeologist friends and that that what you're saying about the sheep and the wool uh jeremy connects us of course to the art world because um there there was a lot of trade uh the i think i believe the italian and the medici were involved as bankers in in renaissance florence i think that they were bringing in a lot of wool from from east anglia uh, yes. and, and there's a wonderful children's book you might know by cynthia harnett called the wool pack which is about yes. that Renaissance world. Oh, that's right, that's right, yes. <laughs> yeah. Kids' books are still good things to read, I think, as a starter to understand, mm. you know, historic moments. Um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be saying that, but uh, uh, we'll get them quoted in essays. But very often they're uh, written by very good historians who basically yes. want to bring these historical stories about, in that case, the art world and the world trade you know, to, to young people. <laughs> and, I, Jeremy, I know that you're a, a, mu a fan of, of music. Um, I, uh, I, it, I'm going to put you on the, maybe, I, maybe I'll allow you a favourite piece of classical or operatic music and maybe a favourite piece of popular music, because I know that you have interests in both fields. OK, start with the popular, that's easy. Um, I've just acquired um, Alexa. I can't say it loudly because <laughs> she'll go off. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's it off. Um, <laughs> and the first thing I did was ask for a 1950s rock and roll playlist. And um, Great Balls of Fire, um, stuff like that. Um, the early rock and rollers I love, especially Buddy Holly. I have to say, um, but Little Richard and people like that, I think uh, they've got a raw energy that I still, uh, still gets through to me somehow. But um, I also love classical opera. I'm not too keen on the very modern opera. I would stop short at Britain. Benjamin Britten, I like. Oh no, we also, um, now my brain's going, who wrote um, uh, Nixon in China? Oh, um, Adams? Adams, yes. Yeah. And he also wrote Dr. Atomic. Yes, these are minim these are operas by minimalist composers, and our art history students will know that word minimalism. And there was a movement in music, art music, if you like, Called minimalism, where where patterns of, of of melody are repeated over and over and over again with miniature changes each time. And in Doctor Atomic, there's an aria um, based on "My Bleeding Heart" by John Donne, and that moves me to tears every time I hear it. And at the moment, I'm halfway through listening to the Ring Cycle. <laughs> for not for the first time. Not for the first time, no. Um, but I, I love Handel, I love Verdi, Mozart, of course, and Schubert, Beethoven. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning quite 
within the last year or two to appreciate Mahler. I never did. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, mm. Mahler, but Mahler was the f probably the first one of the first composers that I got into, and I remember oh. I remember I used to get season tickets for the promenade concerts at every mm. summer at the Albert Hall. Uh, students should look at, look out for that if they're interested in music. It's a good place to meet other young people or other people rather, <laughs> um, and 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 very inexpensive. You can stand in what they call the arena, and 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 the 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 orchestras are, are world class. You know they. Uh, and and I remember talking to someone in the queue once, and he was really surprised. He said, "Oh, most people get into classical music through the Beethoven symphonies." Um, you know, and I said, no, it was the, I, I knew the Mahler symphonies before I knew Beethoven, which apparently yeah, was very awesome. unusual. Yes, it is. <laughs> I can't remember why or what I think I bought a recording, you know, when they used to be vinyl. Mm. I think I bought uh, George, Sir George Schulte, you may have seen him conduct and he's dead now. And uh, he was with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and I had his recordings of the fifth and sixth symphonies and I, I they just blew my mind. They Because I was coming out of, that was a stage when, I was into kind of like rock music, very progressive rock music, you know, classic Pink Floyd, et cetera. And listening to this music, it didn't sound like classical music to me. It had this passion and some of the some of the emotions that you were saying that your 50s rock and roll, yes. you know, it just has a raw, passionate yeah. emotion, I think. Yeah. Um, and um, I do you have a favorite opera house in terms of architecture and music? The only one I know well is the Royal Opera House here but, but, in London. But I've met you at Glyndebourne. <laughs> and, oh, Glyndebourne. Yes, that's true, Glyndebourne. Um, no, I, the, opera, the Royal Opera House is a magical place, I agree, yeah, in London. I think most of our listeners will have visited that at one point or another. If they haven't, they should certainly go. And, yes, you're right, Glyndebourne, um, in a totally different way. Um, mm -hmm. The Opera House itself is interesting, it's modern, um, not particularly moving, but the experience of being there is also special, you're right. And it's a, it comes back to our city-countryside binary, doesn't it? With Glyndebourne yes, is uh, just a game for the listeners, and some of them will have been. Uh, Glyndebourne, you should watch out for it, it's a summer festival. The British have this curious condition where they need to get out and into usually bad summer weather and pretend to picnic and enjoy themselves. And uh, and then and Glyndebourne has these beautiful grounds down in, in the Sussex Downs in the south of England. And the Opera House is magnificent, quite recently refurbished building. And uh, the acoustics are great and it makes a wonderful day out. And it's black tie for those of you who like dressing up on occasions. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> and uh, so work, work of art, Jeremy, do you, do you have, this is, uh, this is a horrible question. I hate people asking me this because it's different moods, but if you, if you had to take one work of art to a desert island, what would it be? And it could, you know, it doesn't have to be a portable work. Okay. If I had to take one work, it would either be a Boschert still life, when I never cease to enjoy looking for the different insects crawling around on the leaves. Intricate <laughs> detail I find fascinating, or. I have a, uh, quite an extended family in Los Angeles, and I spend, I've spent a number of uh, visits with them. And since my first visit, which must have been in the 1970s, there was one obscure painting hanging on the wall of my family there. I have no idea who it's by. It's about four <laughs> inches tall and a foot wide of, um, uh, peasants dancing and when my when the matriarch of the family died and I was invited to pick something that I wanted to remember her by I brought that home mm. and I love it it's in front of me as I'm talking to you now I can't take it off the wall unfortunately to show you 
but it's again it's got a vibrancy about it it's probably worthless um so it's not even signed i've no idea who it's by but i adore it huh. and i'm not sure which one i'd choose anyway it, it's another interesting thing isn't it that Art mm. that one loves doesn't necessarily have to have financial value for one Absolutely to, not. to love it. <laughs> the boss is a bit valuable to take from this island, but I'd still love it. <laughs> I've got one of my students, uh, former students, little still life paintings hanging on the wall of my kitchen, which I purchased when the students had a, an auction at the Institute. Oh. And uh, no one was bidding for this. And I felt so sorry for the student. I bought it and I've really grown to love it. <laughs> nice. That's nice. <laughs> 20 pounds <laughs> I often use that as when, when I'm talking about what is art worth in lectures sometimes I do that lecture and how we value it and how a, a contemporary curator that the, the problems that they will have with you know placing a, a, a financial value on on the work of an artist who's never sold before it's it's a problem uh, it's a problem they always have and I always use that as an example of this this was 20 pounds and then this one was like a thousand pounds and this was five thousand pounds etc etc anyway so uh, getting to the core of the podcast Jeremy the the listeners will I'm sure they will want to know um, I obviously the thing that you're most renowned for or the work that you're most renowned for if I may say so is the British Rail Pension Fund, uh, which uh, which began to invest in works of art. Uh, and I know that you were very much involved with that. And it's so unusual that I think the listeners will find the whole story quite interesting. But just rewinding back from when you were involved with that, was there anything earlier in the art world that you were involved with professionally? No, it's very strange. I started my life I'm not an art expert. I've never pretended to be an art expert. Um, I went to the London School of Economics. I graduated in maths, economics and statistics. My first job was with an insurance company. Um, and at one time, I always, in my lunch hour, I'd stroll down to the National Gallery, I'd look at pictures. I knew I liked looking at them until one day I saw an advertisement, um, a job advert. Um, Sotheby's were looking for an art investment analyst. And I was working at the time as an investment manager for a pension fund. So I applied and I got the job and I started working at Sotheby's and my first um, instruction was to liaise with the British Rail Pension Fund by that time, they'd, they were reaching the end of their buying program, but they needed ongoing um, advice on the state of the market and especially advice on sales, uh, opportunities to sell. And I was very lucky because I got in at the right time. My boss, actually was head of the Chinese department because he was the only person who understood what I was doing. <laughs> Things um, have changed. <laughs> he, he read maths at Cambridge and then went on to study Chinese um, culture. So he was very much a polymath and also ambitious. And he rose to be chairman at one stage. So I was always sort of close to the center of power at Sotheby's. I was also seen to be independent of any individual department, so there was no problem about bias. Very few of the experts actually knew what I was doing or understood what I was doing, <laughs> um, but they were all willing to talk. They loved talking about their subjects. They were prepared to answer questions. And it allowed me to wander around and talk and ask and assimilate and learn more about the market, which is what I was doing. Um, and yeah, I mean, what, what sort of date are we talking about? We're talking about the um, 
early 19... I think we're talking about 1980. Yes. Just about 1980. Um, and Sotheby's was a different world then. It was still very much the old style Sotheby's. Peter Wilson, whom nobody remembers anymore, other than in the history book, was still chairman. It hadn't yet gone public. It was still private. Um, so when the first, when we went public, I was involved in drawing up all the um, statistics that refuted the bid for um, Sotheby's by a gentleman named Cogan and Swid, infamous couple. Um, we put a, um, a document into the Monopolies and Murders Commission to try and fight the bid off. I did all the figure work for that. Mm. Um, I was involved in board meetings with other discussions when Talbot took over, um, which was a year or so later. So I got to see a great deal of Sotheby's. Um, I developed or redeveloped the Sotheby's Index, which was published um, briefly in the Times in London. When I took over, it was relaunched in Barron's financial paper in New York. It went on to be um, uh, syndicated in France, Italy, Germany, Hong Kong, and Japan, and London. So, I was deeply involved in generating statistics for the art market, which in turn fed back to the British Rail Fund and helped them make their decisions on um, the opportune moments to uh, dispose of pieces to maybe top up with other pieces. So how did the relation... How did the relationship, so you're working at Sotheby's as a financial investment analyst, how did the relationship with British Rail and Sotheby's develop? That went, that was a bit earlier. Um, in those days, the idea of conflicts of interest, I don't think anybody understood the term, we were all so naive. Um, but to the extent that we did, it was understood that Sotheby's couldn't advise directly, couldn't advise anybody, couldn't advise a fund on buying art. That was clearly beyond um, anything that was acceptable. And an intermediate company was set up called Lexmore. And what happened was Sotheby's experts were invited to sit as an advisory panel um, working to Lexbourne, they were expected to be independent in their recommendations. And Lexbourne in turn would pass those recommendations on to the British Rail Fund. So there was an intermediate company that acted as a, a fairly effective buffer between um, the pension fund and the art experts. And the art experts would recommend um, no, the individual experts would recommend pieces to the panel. The panel um, would give their opinion, pass that on to the fund, which would uh, effectively um, authorize the purchase or not. So um, how did you, if the specialists, i.e. the art history people in Sotheby's departments, are recommending individual works to this panel. Um, you, you've already said that they didn't really understand, did they, that the financial investment aspect, did you come in on that and say, yes, this is likely to improve I would come value? in and say, um, I would, if you like, second guess some of their valuations. Mm. I would query occasionally. Um, I would help to see whether and the extent to which the pieces helped round off a collection or were one-offs. I would gather information when it came to selling. 
um, there was a lot of discussion over whether they should acknowledge that their pieces were from the British Royal Pension Fund, or whether they were, um, because some dealers had said, we think this is such a terrible thing to do that when you sell, we will sit on our hands and make sure you make a loss. <laughs> now, in the, in the event, the pieces were so good, most of them, the dealers couldn't afford to do that. They had to buy. But um, we would, I would uh, make recommendations as to whether the pieces should be um, included in general sales as simply as um, property of the British Royal Pension Fund, um, at least acknowledge that much, or whether they would have a single owner catalogue as happened, for example, with the Impressionist modern art um, and many of the other individual collections. So just rewinding a bit on that, how did the British Rail Pension Fund come to acquire? So it sounds to me, Jeremy, as though you're you're in position when they've already got this collection of paintings that they've invested in at an earlier time, and then you're part of the process of deciding whether or not to sell which pieces and when. It was mainly that. Well, to begin with, it was rounding up um, any that were where there were gaps. It was then for a number of years monitoring the performance using the indices that I was developing for that purpose. Yes. And then um, making recommendations based on the level of the indices and market conditions generally, whether it was an opportune time to sell, and perhaps at that stage also, whether to sell through a single owner collection, fully acknowledged as being, from the fund or simply insert the lots um, in general sales. And it would you it would it always say property of the British Rail Pension Fund? Yes, but it might. Yeah. So for example, um, Impressionist Art was a single owner catalogue. Impressionist yes. Art from the collection of the British Rail Pension Fund, um, 30 odd lots, a nice hardback catalogue. Wow, do you still um, have that? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, uh, again, again. How did how how did they acquire these paintings in the first place? Well, um, if the panel, the the panel were told that even though their salaries were paid for by Sotheby's, they were Sotheby's employees for the most part. They occasionally brought in an outside expert a dealer or somebody like that who had specialist knowledge, but for the most part, they were um, other Sotheby experts, but they were told they should not act as Sotheby's experts. They had to act independently. Mm. And in fact, um, a small but significant proportion of the works that the fund acquired were bought from elsewhere. A number of works were bought at Chris's mm -hmm. or privately or mm -hmm. through dealers. Mm -hmm. Because if a dealer saw a good example of something at Christie's, sorry, if an expert saw a good example of something at Christie's, their job was to make a recommendation for that. So did they that so the panel were the same panel that were involved in selling them? So they were at what point can you remember? Was it the 1970s? They the panel was set up to buy for the pension for the British Royal Pension? Um, the, the panel to buy was set up in the seven at the end of the 70s. Yeah, and then you come in in the 80s and you're involved more in the process of yes. deciding when to sell what they'd already purchased. Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Um, I, do you, have you any idea? Because people wouldn't associate. British Railways with art. Have you any idea what made British Rail as a, as a, it was a, just to remind our listeners, the railway system in this country used to be nationalized. It's still partly nationalized, but mainly privatized now, but it used to be a, a big national institution that my father worked for. So when my father retired, Jeremy, he was, he had quite a reasonable pension, which when he died mm. then went to my mum and it was okay. And I, as a member of the family, we were allowed to use, I got free railway tickets, including when I went down to do my research in Italy, 
in Naples. I got a free ticket there and back because my father was oh. working for British Rail. So, but I just oh, wonder no. how how did they get interested in art? Was it a... okay? Well, they <laughs> were very traditionally invested for a pension fund. Yeah. And in the early seventies, you had to be alive then to realize just what a desperate condition our economy was in. Yes. We were working three days a week. There were yes. strikes, everywhere. it was just terrible. Um, and the value of the investments that the British Rail Fund was making was going down. Um, very often, and I was in, I was working as an investment manager in the pension fund myself then, so I remember. <laughs> Um, you would buy some stock, and before you'd even reported it to the board, it had gone down in value. It was, it was really quite frightening. And the fund, in their wisdom, well, actually, it was one man, the um, chairman of the fund at the time, decided that they needed to find an alternative asset class. And now we're starting to use the language of art as an investment. They were looking for an alternative asset class. Now, in a fund, you want to match your assets to your liabilities. And the pension fund had long-term liabilities and it wanted something that was probably counter-cyclic to the stock market, or at least uncorrelated to the stock market. There were traditional alternatives, namely property and land, but they were both going down in value. Um, everything was falling. Mm -hmm. and so this is, in some ways, this is a historic moment for like our current MAR business students, that this oh, is yes. where what they're doing most of the time and talk thinking about most of the time this is where it began the notion that arts Absolutely. if you chose well it wouldn't lose its value in fact it would increase in value where every other stock in the world was going down that's very much what they were hoping mm. and the chairman cast around for some alternative Sotheby's at the time was looking to increase its business by finding some new clients and Fortuitously, they managed to meet up. I'm not quite sure how, where, when, but <laughs> the financial profile, financial characteristics of works of art in terms of being a long-term, solid, real asset um, suited the pension fund. Interesting. There was also a rather arcane reason um, at the time, oh, and they wanted to buy something which had an overseas, uh, uh, an international marketability because they felt that, that would be a good protection against um, falls in the UK economy, which of course art has. So art seemed ideal. And the arcane thing was at the time, if you bought stocks and bonds, from overseas, you couldn't just buy them with dollars, you had to buy them with what were called premium dollars. And those that was a pool of dollars that were reserved for buying foreign stocks and shares, but the cost of those dollars was anything up to 40% more than buying regular dollars. And you had to go through that channel. So, buying overseas stock was heavily weighted against you. But until that time, nobody had thought that art was an asset class. So they hadn't bothered to put the dollar premium on purchases of art. So you could buy a million dollars worth of art in New York and not pay the premium. Whereas if you bought a million dollars worth of stock in New York, you'd pay 40% more for it. So it's a little bit like the you know, art today, you pay less import export 
uh, tats yeah. usually because it's considered something you know has a cultural aspect uh, as well as a financial aspect and and um the and sorry one more thing yeah. which is sort of personal but on yeah. not personal so on a personal level the um the head of the british royal fund was getting tired of traipsing around factories looking at um steelworks and other things to invest in <laughs> Whereas at the time, the representative from Sotheby's who was put in charge of handling him was somebody called Anna Maria Edelstein, who I believe is still alive. In fact, I know she is. Um, yeah, I know she is. Um, and she was, still is, a very glamorous, exotic woman. Used to be editor of Art in Action and head of publicity. And he found it far more, the chairman of BR, found it far more exciting to go around with her and go to previews and sales <laughs> than he found going around factories. So that was an added incentive. Um, I think so that... You, got into it. Yeah, and I, I, you were speaking about the director, Peter Wilson. Um, I think a lot of us, you know, we, we all read the... The, uh, the airport books about Sotheby's history, and it's, yes. a, great, it's a great story. Uh, and Peter Wilson is obviously a big character in those. And I'm just thinking in some ways you could create a timeline, 1958, the famous uh, Wilson auction, first ever yeah, Thai evening auction. <laughs> uh, and, you know, with BBC TV cameras and glamorous celebrities yeah. invited in, which really changed, I think, the art world into a glamorous world, which was still with today, I would say, and then, in, and then, then, uh, ten years later, we get the the first that time Sotheby's index financial financial index that you were referring to that was then yes. later there's, resurrected. There's sort of, it, it's not a paradigm shift, but it's a gradual shift. It's gradual, it's yeah. yeah. And that because the Sotheby's was forced to go public. Yeah, um, shares issued Talbot took over, and for the first time. Because it was public, Sotheby's had responsibility to shareholders. Yes. Up till then, it was still very much a gentleman's club. Yeah. And nobody, nobody took the slightest notice of what was, what the financial consequences were, um, which couldn't go on forever. And, and I get, so yeah, I guess. I guess when you've got shareholders, you have to rationalise what you're investing your money in. <laughs> and if it's art, you have to begin to start thinking, well, this is this is very rare or this is going to yeah. be hot in the next 10 years. But even through, I was there in Sotheby's through the 80s and 90s for about two decades. And even while I was there, up until the last few years, we still managed to hang on to that, if you like, clubby, Mm. culture and it was only the last couple of years when um the american branch began to flex its muscles yeah and you got the financial control shifting to america that's really when things started to toughen up i think so and jeremy thinking about what kind of art objects were considered invest of investment value in the in the you know from the time of the the Sotheby's Times index late 60s I I remember I did some research on that for a uh, we did we had a 50 years uh 50 years since the birth of Sotheby's Institute of Art a few years ago and that coincided with the launch of the Times Sotheby's index so I did quite a lot of research on Times archives looking at these wonderful articles that appeared every week with indices and everything all the things that we look at today yes uh, and 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 the art that was selling well at the time it wasn't just paintings it was very much silver and the you know the kind of stuff that used to sell at the Grosner fair the annual fair which has metamorphosed so. into masterpiece so could you say something about which sectors was there such a thing as contemporary art in the no. in the, <laughs> the nineteen um, even in the nineteen seventies, um, British Rail refused to invest in contemporary art because it was too volatile. But there was no market. You got paintings like um, you could buy paintings for uh, complete collections would fetch um, ten million pounds. 
and it was a wonderful figure. If anything fetched a million, it was news, front page newspaper, mm-hmm. and very rare at that. It gradually developed, but it was still, they were real paintings by, um, now whether it was Warhol or Skull or, um, oh, my memory, remind me, um, Horizontal Stripes. Rothko. <laughs> Rothko. Um, I love it. <laughs> um, artists like that, um, you could pick up for modest, well, not modest, yeah. but um, they were still bought by collectors. Yes. It's really changed, um, hasn't it? In the new millennium, suddenly, it, the, suddenly new millennium the market has is... changed yep. totally. And um, would you see Jeff Koons in those days? No. <laughs> would you see um, Basquiat? No. Would mm. you see NFTs um, or any, any of this conceptual art? No. I read in the art newspaper this morning, somebody in the Venice Biennale was turning a couple of tons of metal into a, melting it down yeah. and calling it art. Now, it's one thing when um, Duchamp calls the urinal art and that, okay, you, this is art or the pipe, um, Magritte's pipe. And you laugh at that and you think, ah, maybe, but they're real physical canvases or the urinal. But I'm afraid that my interest in art stops very much short of trying to understand, it's a different motivation I feel now. Whereas at the time they were people prepared to learn about the art market, to understand it, to collect it and enjoy it. And okay, yes, to invest in it. Now I firmly believe that people are buying art for an experience. The art itself, they don't understand, they don't care to understand. I got a quote from a very well-known dealer who I can't name, who said the majority of his buyers today know nothing about art. They are totally uneducated. They just buy it because they know they should. Yeah, I guess it's absolutely. become more of a brand, um, you know. We... It, absolutely, it's a brand, it's a trophy. Yeah. Now, most... Most people don't really want to know how a Louis Vuitton bag is actually made, but obviously no, they wear it. Like, would you, know. you care? Would you call a Louis Vuitton bag art? Well, and that's another question. That's... Made, <laughs> it brings into question the difference between art and um, luxury, luxury goods. Yeah, yeah. and I know so what... Southern is, is moving towards it, considering itself a luxury brand, um, positioning itself in the market in that way. So Jeremy, but coming back to the to the period you were there, were silver object was it did it tend to be uh yes, silver was bought? You um, get silver as well and furniture. Silver, furniture, um especially French furniture, but also um Italian furniture. Yes. A painted Italian painted furniture. Mm. Um the fund had a very, very nice collection of um enameled and jeweled stuff boxes, for example. Um, what else did they have? Um, a lot of 19th century paintings. To some extent, their purchases were dependent on storage. Okay. So they couldn't buy too much, three dumps of big stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they bought a lot, mostly they bought flat art. But these smaller collectibles, uh, as I say, like the um, the snuff boxes, um, they had some tribal art. They had a superb collection of Chinese porcelain, um, really magnificent. That went off in three sales. Did it do um, well? Exceptionally well. Yeah. So that was one um, of the sectors that did well. Which sectors didn't do so as well as you might think, and which did much better than you might have imagined? Well, Impressionist art and Chinese porcelain did really exceptionally well, far better than anybody dared to hope. Um, 
unfortunately, well, they had a very good collection of antiquities. Mm. But uh, at the time, Sotheby's still had an antiquity department. Um, they were purchased because they were reckoned to be undervalued, as indeed they were. But unfortunately, when it came time to sell, they were still undervalued. So <laughs> although it made a profit, it was a pretty disappointing one. Mm. Um, the same was true for tribal art, which was a bit of an outlier, but they bought some tribal art and that didn't do very well either. The real disappointment, I think, was Old Masters. Yeah. Um, Old Masters, I suppose more than any other sector, has chugged along slowly and steadily. Um, it's the equivalent of government stock. It will never go down in value, but it goes up ever so slowly. Mm-hmm. It's it's a long-term reliable investment until recently when I think the decision to include some old masters in contemporary sales and try and mix the buyers has really succeeded very well. And for the first time, we're seeing old masters fetch serious prices. Although they do tend to be big names like Leonardo and Botticelli. At the moment, they tend to be big names, mm. but they, the marketing attempts by the departments, I think are beginning to result in a, a real crossover. Definitely. Um, so the people who've been buying contemporary have a chance to look at old masters and with the same bank balance, think, well, actually, you know, that's rather nice. Maybe I'll up a notch and start learning about this, this stuff they call art. And also, I think old master specialists and galleries, I'm thinking of Colnaghi Gallery in London, mm-hmm. and uh, I think particularly spearheaded by Sotheby's Auction House Old Masters Department under Chloe Stead when she was there and she's now at Colnaghi. Uh, she was the one who worked with Victoria Beckham and put the old master portraits in amongst Victoria Beckham's autumn collection. Yes. And it, uh, suddenly a lot of young people were interested in old masters. And then that, that turned into rediscovering women old masters, big sale, the female triumphant Sotheby's New York, uh, you know, involving a lot of young people, a lot of young collectors. So I think things have changed a little bit. And we, as you say, we've got this cross collecting now where it is becoming quite fashionable to put an old master alongside a modern contemporary work. Um, just coming back to the success of the fund in your which you were yeah. a part of, obviously, because of your in, in indices and advice. Uh, the you, I think you've said before, the Impressionists in particular, uh, those, do you want to say why they sold so well when you decided to sell them? It was part opportunistic. Um, it was known that the Japanese, for whatever reason, had a particular interest in buying in Impressionist art. It appealed. And there came a time in the oh mid-80s, I yeah. think. No, late 80s. Late when, 80s. Um, the Japanese economy was booming mm-hmm. when the yen was very strong. The exchange rate of the yen against the dollar was very strong. Mm, things have changed. But, uh, <laughs> they have. So it seemed that even though prices in dollars were going up to a buyer with yen in their pockets, to an increasing number of wealthy yen-based buyers, prices were steady or maybe even going down slightly. So the Japanese were very, very interested in buying Impressionist art. And it was deemed, we reckoned, there may never be an opportunity like this again. Mm-hmm. So the single owner collection was put together and it did extremely well. Probably the best performing collection of all the British Rail Fund's works. Yeah, and if, if you look at the top 20 most expensive paintings, if you actually allow for inflation, those Van Goghs and Renoirs are still oh, pretty much in that they're top they're 20. Absolutely, they that sold, that sold to that Japanese, the Japanese mm. collectors, and that was a very important lesson, I think, for the uh, for the fund. It did extremely well. 
And something similar in a way happened with the Chinese porcelain because um, it was a time when Hong Kong, um, I can't remember the details, but um, there was a lot of wealth coming out of, a lot of wealth in Hong Kong. Hmm. And Hong Kong buyers were especially interested in the works that the fund had acquired. And it was deemed to be, again, an opportune moment to sell the Chinese porcelain collection. And that I believe was actually in and around 1990. So, so was, a lot of this is about making informed, rational decisions based on earlier performance and yes. just project it into the future. It, it's very really much that because yeah. um, you've got to take your chance when you see it. Yeah. And rather than wait another year, yes, it would have gone up in value by another year, but we, we would have missed the high spot. But also, um, am I not right in saying that come 1990, come 1991, the Japanese economy crashes and there may not have been the interest and in the, the, the whole, precisely. you know, we had Black Absolutely. Monday and everything and the whole world economy went down. So if you hadn't sold then, it would have been too late. Yes, absolutely. So we were, I think, very successful. And maybe that's why the old master collection did so badly, because they waited, or we waited rather, until just wait. yeah. we just waited. Well, they and say they say with old masters you should wait 25 to 35 years. Yes, you and they them. probably were trying to do that. Mm. And the collection dribbled out. There was one dedicated collection which did okay. Then some were sold in New York. A few more were sold later on in London. Mm. And it wasn't until 2000, the year 2000, that they finally sold off the lot. So there's no more British Royal Pension Fund There is no more British Royal Pension <laughs> Fund art at all. Um, <laughs> but the end result was very successful. They invested 40 million. They got back, I think, a total of 176 million. Wow. Um, overall return, 23%, no, about 23%, I think. But the important lesson they learned, which was they ended up with 2,000 pieces and the logistics of looking after 2,000 pieces were quite a, quite a headache. And it, do you know where they were, do you know where they were stored? Yeah, in what is now the Eurostar terminal, um, before St Pancras was rebuilt, that was a an underground warehouse. Oh, really? Trail, and it was converted into um, a climate-controlled, secure what storage facility. Wow, I didn't know that. And, from, and 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 so they weren't these the the the, the works in the collection weren't being enjoyed they were like well, a lot of were, yeah. were the very important paintings were loaned out to museums many of them in the states in yes. dallas washington new york i see i don't think chicago dallas washington new york yeah which obviously um, increased their value because you were able to stay in the provenance that this Absolutely. has been on show in <laughs> now of course, a fund trying to do that today wouldn't be successful because the museum would say, why should we look after this art for you when you get the benefit of the increase in value? We, The museum was responsible for the insurance, possible conservation work if needed. Yeah. And yeah. the fund got the benefit. Yes. Nowadays, the museum would say, well, what's it truly? What's in it for us? Although there are some recent famous examples like Picasso that sold at Christie's, um, you know, that was on intake modern for a while. Do you remember the Rubens that sold at, uh, the Rubens Massacre of the Innocents that uh, yes, yes, yes. that sold to Lord Fleet and, and then it suddenly went to when he died, no one realized that his will said, Oh, it's now got to go back to my birthplace in Canada. <laughs> uh, so there were there's there's some examples and uh, there are some. Yeah. um and some, to the fund's credit, 
went back to places like Darlington, mm-hmm. local museums that had heritage connections with early railways. Oh, nice. So there was some... And there were still railway workshops, um, yeah. repair yards and stuff. So yeah. local yeah. people could see something of where their pension money was going. So there was a little bit of ethical display there. Absolutely, <laughs> Actually, yes. of course, the, the examples I've just pointed out are slightly different because they've been purchased by private collectors, whereas uh, what you're saying is that a, a museum is unlikely to boost the value of an investment fund of art. <laughs> Uh, yes. Whereas if someone has purchased it and they can put themselves forward as a philanthropic individual. Oh, that, yes, yeah. of course. So it is, di- it is different. So, yeah, Jeremy, yeah. maybe finally, what do you, th- you know, it seems to me that historically, uh, and, and and you should write a book on the on this, really. Historically, it's that's the only art fund that we know has been successful to date. Is that correct? Um, it's a very interesting question. Um, there have been many subsequent attempts at starting funds. Most of them have been unsuccessful, mm-hmm. mainly because they lacked the money. They they lacked the money and the infrastructure to put it all together. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't make it work. Um, you find a number of very small funds quite a large number of small funds that may invest in specifics. You might find a South African fund or a Canadian fund. Um, They invest in particular geographic areas and they've got a small but highly focused um, collecting manifesto and people who are interested in that area. So they may be geographic, they may be concerned with a certain artist, a certain genre. You may even get a dealer's fund, which is a little bit complicated, but a dealer may try and liquidate their fund and invite other people to share in the increase in value. Mm. You've also got the fine art. It's now called the fine art group. Oh, Philip of Hoffman. Fine art Philip Hoffman. Mm. Now, um, I know Sotheby's Institute, I don't know whether they did this year, they regularly get somebody coming along from the from the fund talking about the fund's experience. Now, we know because they frequently tell us that they've sold an individual work at a great profit. What we don't know is the value of the works they haven't yet sold. And we won't know whether the fund was successful until it liquidates. Mm. Because unlike um, conventional funds, um, you you never know what they've got. You can't value them in in that sort of way. So we don't really know how, we know the success of the pieces that have been successful. Now that's not to denigrate the fund in any way because what Philip Hoffman succeeded in doing is what nobody else managed to do which was actually pull together and construct and launch a series of, um, we'd call them plain vanilla, um, or masters, impressionist, 19th century. I think there's a contemporary fund. Um, so he's actually managed to do it by dint of extremely hard work. He spent years plodding around talking to investors and promoting it and putting on presentations and he got there good for him but we don't know really yet how successful it is but as I say there are a number of small funds out there that are um, doing their own thing there are specialist funds that for example um, a very good fund is there's a violin fund yes and uh, they will buy violins that young musicians can't afford They'll lend them to the musicians in the hope that those musicians will become famous musicians in time. And um, they will be known as the, you know, the David Bellingham violin. <laughs> Nigel David Kennedy Bellingham. Yes, <laughs> precisely something like that. Um, and maybe the young musician will be able to buy it or rent mm. it. 
but meanwhile it's a, a good charitable philanthropic mm. way of putting good instruments in the hands of young players who couldn't otherwise afford them. Well, Jeremy, I, I, I've realised that we've probably gone a little over time. Um, maybe, maybe another time we could do another podcast to maybe talk about what you've been what you've been doing since um, since I'd be, the. I'd be the very happy to do that because I've had. <laughs> I've been very lucky when I left Sotheby's, which was in nineteen thirty years ago now. Um, I've actually thoroughly enjoyed myself doing other things but always connected in some way with the art market or with heritage, mm. cultural heritage, and always in the end coming back to my, I suppose what's really at the heart of my interest, which is the art market, which is why I enjoy talking for Sotheby's Institute. I enjoy working with the students. I enjoy still involving myself in keeping a close eye on what's going on in the art world. So that still remains the, I suppose, the core of my interest, even though I've branched out quite a lot since. So if you ever want to engage with me again, I'd be delighted. <laughs> and uh, well, on that kind of musical note, I, I, I'd like to thank you on behalf of all our listeners. I'm sure we'll have found fascinating as ever. I mean, I, I've heard this story several times in several iterations but it's always different which is i think the sign of a good storyteller um and when i said oh maybe you should write a book in some ways that's always a problematic for me when the moment someone writes a story down that has been oral it fits as an aspect and it ceases to become dynamic if you like it's a bit yeah, like a folk song the moment you put the moment you write a folk song down it's stuck in its in yes. that time and it can't change as it's meant to with contemporary and that was the most fascinating thing about the art world is it's dynamic it's amazing i've never it? given i've never been able to give for southern's institute the same lecture two years running <laughs> because the market conditions it just market changes every day has always changed <laughs> so how can yeah. you write a book about it which isn't going to come out for two yep. years yeah. it's history by the time it comes out i did actually start writing an introduction to the art market a few years ago and because it keeps changing and then we had the pandemic and i keep saying to the potential publisher oh thank god i didn't publish it last yeah, year because everything's changed so much so hopefully eventually that will come out at a time when the the, the sea uh, is smooth it never yes <laughs> it never will be we're entitled, we are entitled to a few years of um calm after all of this but i think yet. so yeah anyway jeremy thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest a of your day a very enjoyable pleasure Okay. Thank you, David. Okay.